I've always taken the approach of being, I kind of learned this early on from some initial bosses and mentors that I had is being like, by the time it got to them, it was like, are, is this a good culture fit for us? Because from the sense of like, we get the good news is that we get hundreds of applicants, like for everything that we put out there. There's a lot of, you know, weeding out we got to do, but there's also a lot of smart people too. And of those smart people, who do we want to work with? So the big question is this, how do small business owners like us grow our leadership, develop our teams and scale our business in a way that allows us to get our products and services out to the world yet still remain profitable? That is the question and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Bradley Hamner and this is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Autopilot Recruiting. Join over 1,200 State Farm agents in putting your recruiting on Autopilot. Any successful insurance agent will tell you how important team is. Finding those rock star team members doesn't happen when left to chance. It happens through consistent recruiting. You never know when you're going to lose a team member, and the key to an incredible team is constantly searching for the best talent. Autopilot Recruiting is a continuous recruiting service where you'll be assigned a recruiter that has been trained to recruit on your behalf every business day. This recruiter will take over and revamp your career plug, send out assessments, do pre-screened phone interviews, and schedule your in-office interviews. All you need to do is to show up and give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. This ongoing service is extremely affordable and a no-brainer for taking your insurance agency to the next level. Listeners of the Club Capital Leadership Podcast, go to autopilotrecruiting.com and use the code CLUBCAPITAL to get started. Again, autopilotrecruiting.com and use the code CLUBCAPITAL to get started. Sometimes I feel like the team doesn't know what we do, right? Like when you're in the position of like owning the firm or being at the top, leading the leading the team, and you put everybody in place and there's sometimes this sense of like, what do you do all day, right? Whether it's asked or not asked at the team. And something came up today that was very much to me. I'm like, you know what? This is the type of stuff I do, right? Mm-hmm. Something <laughs> came up just totally left field. We've got a company that is out there that is going by pretty much the same name as us, that is not doing what we do, but is in the general finance sector. And in essence, it's a scam. Hmm. Wow. And so we've been getting calls into our office saying, hey, stop emailing me. These are from not current clients of ours until recently. And some of them have been clients and people within our sector saying, who is this guy like that that's emailing me and leaving me voicemails? And like, I've told you guys to stop calling me about this stuff. And we're saying, you know, what are you talking about? (laughs) It's scamming them on loans and ERTC, employee retention tax credits, small business loans. Hey, your Experian credit score qualifies you for X amount of loans. Call me right now, right, to get this. And we're like, holy cow. Man. And they're using like our name. And so they picked up the phone. And they say, Hey, this is Matt from Club Capital. How are you doing? Wow. What? Yeah. So well, imitation's yeah. the best form of flattery. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, so I'm like forwarding that over to like our attorneys saying, How do we want to handle this? Not something I've had to deal with in the past. I do know, you know, I mean, we have a trademark on our 
name. But again, it's not something I've dealt with before. So it was just an example of like, okay, you got your day planned out with stuff you're going to do. And then you get something like this. You're like, all right, okay, figure this out. Like, and this is the type of stuff I deal with sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Micah the night before laid out his his planner and said, these are the things I'm going to get done. Like then this perfect, like, uh, here's my evening ritual, my evening routine of all the things I'm going to do and get it out of my head because I know that that's best practice. Nowhere in there that you were thinking you're going to be dealing with that today. I mean, that's welcome to owning a business, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was exactly what I told like our general manager. I was like, if you're ever wondering what I'm doing, it's it ends up being random projects like this. <laughs> yeah. So probably, I don't know if you've had it, but you know, I've had a couple of aspirants come through now and you know, we tried talking to them about owning a business and all this stuff. But by the end of it, they like by the end of the two year process or three year process, they think they have it all figured out, right? And they're like so excited to get into it and they think my job's easy and all that stuff, right? And then usually about the first three months, I get a phone call like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> totally. totally. <laughs> I can't believe all the stuff I got to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, that's so true. I mean, because until uh, you sit in that seat, until you sit in that seat, it's almost like trying to say, what's a band you listen to, David? Who do you like? Who do you like to listen to? Be good. I don't have a one particular band. I'm like top 40s. You're either top 40s or yeah. just, I mean, it's what you don't want to say. It's going to be Taylor Swift. You know? Yes. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> this is perfect for my point. Is that the point is, if, if you go to a Taylor Swift concert, and I got a story about that too, by the way, we can wrap this in business. Okay. But we're going to come back to this point in a second. So if you go to a Taylor Swift concert and then you come back, and you're trying to get me to understand what it was like to be at the Taylor Swift concert, there's no amount of you talking to me is going to get me immersed into what the experience was actually like. And that's the same thing with somebody that works for you that wants to go on and step into entrepreneurship. You can spend two years trying to explain to them what it's like to sit in your seat, and they'll never fully know until they actually sit in that seat with their name on the door and they're signing the back of the checks. Or the front of the checks, excuse me. Isn't that right? Yeah, exactly. exactly right. So, okay. I think I heard something like that the other day. It was like, uh, you want to start a business? Yeah, get used to signing the front of the checks, right? <laughs> that's what you're going to do for a while. Right? <laughs> hey, I do want to come back to though, because we'll go down too far. To your point initially, Micah, about that idea is I struggled with that myself. And I literally created a document. I'm looking at it right now. I'll show it to you if you want me to. It says Bradley's job description. It's like, this is my role (laughs) because I kept having to explain, here's all the things I don't do, but what are the things that I do do? And Mm -hmm. so, for instance, let's just say there's a great book about this, Buy Back Your Time by Dan Martell. I've been in a couple of masterminds with him. So let's say your hourly rate is $250 an hour. Okay, let's just say you made all in between your distributions and your salaries, whatever, you made half a million dollars, okay? Somebody may listen to that. Wait, that's way too much. It doesn't matter, the number. Let's say it's 125. You made 250 last year, okay? And so your hourly rate is 125 an hour. Okay, well, what are the things that are $125 an hour task? There's not many of them. Let's be real. There's not many of them. But I think I needed to get out, well, what are those tasks? What are those things that are $125 an hour tasks? I mean, I can delegate a lot to like 
my EA, Lauren, or to Courtney or to somebody else on the team, but nobody else is speaking into the mic as one example. That's just one thing. So I actually created a document to help with that. So like, what's a couple of the things that you feel like you do that are whatever dollar an hour rates for you? What do you think that that is? I mean, I've, we've spoken about this. Mike and I have gone around the country speaking at different conferences on this. But I mean, certainly uh, when you're owning an insurance agency, there's there's only a few tasks that kind of fit that bill rate, right? One is recruiting team members, right? Because you can get leverage on that. They come in the door and they're producing and they, you know, they're good, good attitude team member. They're going to certainly produce more than 125 an hour for you, right? Training your team, right? So you have a team of, you know, whatever it is, five people, three people, 10 people. You're able to, again, exert leverage where you tell them something once and they can use it over and over and over again. To me, that's going to make you 125 an hour. Marketing your business out in the community with somebody that can send you more than one customer, right? So your car dealerships, your loan officers, et cetera. And then uh, meeting with your big clients. So, you know, people that that, that ultimately can, can, in our world where we do insurance and financial services, that can be a bigger revenue per case, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, for me, those are the four things that, in that business that I that focus on, right? Yeah, um, but I think different businesses is, you know, different things too, right? So, yeah. What do you think, yours or Micah? I think the two biggest areas for me, it's on the recruiting piece, especially for us at Club Capital and like our kind of growth trajectory. I, I don't get involved with all of our recruiting anymore. Obviously, I was at first. And, you know, I've seen that there's some owners and founders that, still like they're interviewing every single person that kind of comes in no matter what position. I don't do that anymore. I put a lot of trust into my managers to hire the positions, you know, some of the positions under them that that are in their purview with guidance and, and everything along the way. And I really spend my time recruiting some more of the senior team members that we're going to bring in. So some of the managers or some of the new business ventures that we're getting into finding leads for those positions. It's a totally different amount of recruiting, amount of time you spend trying to find them, trying to see the type of fit it's going to be for them. And it's much more custom when you're looking at stuff like that, right? Instead of just having one position where we know we're going to need 5, 10, 15 of this position and, and you yeah. already have it kind of designed and this is that comp plan and, and we go find somebody for it versus really like a custom fit of we know generally what we need. Let's try and find that person that can fit that mold and then build, you know, maybe a comp plan and a system around them, like find the way to piece them in. That definitely ends up being a good amount of where I look at spending my time. And for, especially with just the amount of <laughs> stuff we're doing at Club Capital and different areas we're getting into. That's one of the biggest areas, some of that, the more leadership and management side of, of recruiting. So I got uh, a question. The first time you did that, like practically, the first time you really handed off that, what's an example? Because you've obviously, somebody hears that and says, my man, I want to get to that level. But I mean, you had to take some initial steps to do that and then trust and hand it off. And I'm sure it didn't go like perfect or whatever. Maybe it did. I don't know. But like, what was that process like for you to be able to get to that point to hand it off to somebody? Because that's a big thing to hand off. It is. But ultimately, you've got to have trust in the team that, that you've built under you. And so I didn't do it until I had managers in place, right? So, you know, until those managers are in place, you are that manager, right? You're that person for whatever department you have. If you don't have a manager, 
it's you, <laughs> right? Yeah. So until you get those people in place, you do have to do it on your own. But we just set up a process internally once we did have managers of what does, you know, what does it look like? And David does a good job of this, you know, in his agency of setting up a process around recruiting for what the interviews look like and then what the cadence is, right? So you meet with this person, which is really just kind of a qualification or culture check. And then you go into meeting with the team and then meeting with the manager, et cetera. And so we just looked and designed it for certain roles. We also don't want it to be too many interviews depending on the role, right? So some of it was like, okay, well, we got to cut one out here. And it was a realization of at some point we could cut me out. Like it was kind of like ending with me. And my thought was, well, if all of you have approved it at this point, like I have to get to a point where I have to trust those under me to make the right call. And if they made the right call to get it to me, then I'd probably approve anyway. And I'll just kind of step out of the way and trust them. And, you know, I think it does one, it frees up my (laughs) time, but it also shows, and I think it does a good job of showing to those managers that, you know, I have trust in them to make the right decision. And so I think it does. And I, I, hope it does, you know, it makes them kind of realize, oh, wow, there's, there's a lot of stock going into my decision here. I better, <laughs> I better make a good decision. There's a couple of things there. First, I mean, just the, you know, obviously gives those managers ownership too, right? So if every employee becomes my decision, you know, my picks are not doing well, right? But all of a sudden, if it's their picks, they're defending them, they want them to succeed more, right? <laughs> so there's a level of like, hey, I decide, I, I said yes on this person versus you said yes on this person. And if they're picking the team, then, you know, they're living and dying with their team versus just me picking it, right? Micah, you know, you, you, Micah hit it on the head there too. It's like there's recruiting that's always occurring with the business, but then you're, you know, what Micah's doing and you, you mentioned it, what I'm doing to some degree is looking for the superstars, looking for the A players that like maybe we don't have a position and we're not advertising that position, but they're going to come in and they're going to change the business and we're going to make a position because of this person, right? And those are the type of people that can change the trajectory of, of the business. So, you know, we're always recruiting. And yes, some of that's delegated to the team, but you're, you always kind of have your head on a swivel for people that are like rock stars in their position or rock stars in their current company. And, you know, can they come over here? Can we put them in a better position where they can grow, have better development for themselves and ultimately the company too, right? All right. So check this out. This is cool. This is hot off the press. I'm talking about within two hours. So Mastermind, I'm a part of. Mike, my mentor, we had a small group this morning at eight central. He had a speaker come in. She owns a recruiting agency. I think it's actually called, what is it called? The A Player Agency. That's the name of her recruiting agency. And so she was a disciple of Jeff Smart, who wrote Top Grading and Who, right? Like the seminal books on recruiting. And if people haven't read that one, read those top grading, super long, really kind of executive level, but who's an awesome book anyway. So she built her whole agency. She's interviewed personally over 5,000 people. And so she was summarizing some of the best parts of the recruiting. So anyway, you want me to share this? This was good. She had some really good points. It was awesome. I shared this already with a couple other people. So this is like fireside chat, hot off the press. Okay. So she asked everybody on the call. What's the goal of an interview? And I was like, hmm, I've never been asked that question before. What is the goal of an interview? And so everybody answered skill, culture, fit, fit to roll, those kind of things, right? I mean, pretty standard. And she said, well, we define the goal of an interview is the ability 
to accurately predict a candidate's performance in a role. I was like, well, okay, well, that's interesting. I've never actually had a definition of what the goal is of the interview. So that was one thing. Well, she goes on and she went over three specific questions. The question was, one, what were you hired to do? It's part of the who process. And so you go through like each one of their jobs that they had and you ask them, what were you hired to do? It's not about the power of the questions that was really that big of a deal. More so how she defined how an A player would answer that question versus how B and C players answer that question. So this was interesting to me. She said A players will always talk about results and outcomes. B and C players will talk generally about events, people, but they never get into results and outcomes at all. That was really interesting to me to be aware that an A player is going to give you, well, we did this, we did that. There's the results we had, this is the money we made, this is the, you know, what whatever that may be. But a B and C player would just kind of talk round in circles. And she said, if I can't follow their answer, then I know I've got a B or a C player. To me, that was really interesting. So that was point number two. Point number three, she said, is in question three, she'll say, what were the low points of that job? And she said, a lot of people would be really hesitant to give you kind of the negative on something. And she said, I won't let people off the hook with this. And the reason is I'll lean into them and push on them really hard because an A player will always see it as a learning experience. In other words, she had this great quote. She said, A players will have a pattern of extracting success out of the jaws of defeat. I know that I have an A player there versus a B and C player will never tell you anything bad that ever happened in a job or position or a project because they're insecure. They're insecure that they were never able to pull the success or their learnings from it. She goes, listen, people make mistakes personally, professionally, but the A players can learn from it and be able to improve in the future. To me, that was amazing and helps me frame anytime I'm ever going to talk to somebody in the future. What do you guys think about that? That's awesome. Thank you for sharing, first off. But uh, yeah, I think I've heard something to the effect of that as well, where like, uh, you know, people that actually solve the problems in their previous company can speak really well and in detail about those problems. And the ones that, you know, give me a problem that you had at your old company and they can't tell you details about that. You know that that's not the person that was solving that problem, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that, Micah? I mean, I totally agree. I think like if someone doesn't give you finite numbers, it means that, I mean, they don't have them or they don't think like that, which just tells you a lot about it, about them to begin with, right? That being said, though, depending on the role that like you interview for, I think we do a good job at Club Capital of like finding really good culture fits. And that's both for internal culture, but also like client culture. So many of our roles are very much like client relationship roles. Interviewing for that is not about stats sometimes, right? So like there's going to be an interview or part of the interview that you have. That's about stats, right? And what did you do? And, you know, do you have that A player, right? But there's not as many necessarily stats besides, I mean, you can relate things down to like NPS or like how they get, how good their portfolio retention was in a previous role or something like that, right? But like getting to relationship and culture and like how they build that with clients is something that we try and really interview for. And it's been something like specifically for me, when I am involved in interviews, with some of our direct client relationship staff, like by the time it gets to me, like I don't focus as much on, I guess what you would call some of their like accolades of previous hmm. work. 
because I would expect that that's already been taken care of, right? Because the, the process we have internally is by the time it gets to me, they should already be that player, right? That person that's excelled in the past, right? Has kind of checks the box because our other team through initial screening and through the two manager, you know, interviews that they go through, like we should already screen that out at that point, right? Mm-hmm. But then I've always taken the approach of being, I kind of learned this early on from some initial bosses and mentors that I had is being like, by the time it got to them, it was like, are, is this a good culture fit for us? Because from the sense of like, we get the good news is that we get hundreds of applicants, like for everything that we put out there. There's a lot of, you know, weeding out we got to do, but there's also a lot of smart people too. And of those smart people, who do we want to work with? Right. It's and almost like the skills, for us? like you can evaluate the skills pretty quickly, right? You know, the skills that you need in those jobs and you can look at the resume and see they probably have the requisite skills. Then I think what's interesting, I'd never really thought about, I mean, cultural fit, like every company has a culture period. It just depends on what the culture is. But you saying also external clients, almost like the culture that the clients have. I'd never actually considered that. That's pretty interesting. I got to get you on that one. Think about it. I, I know I think about it. We think about it quite a bit. You know, we have our own internal culture, but also what are clients like? We have so much about what our roles are, client facing roles. We do account management, financial reviews, right? CFO services, tax. Outside of everything that I just mentioned, so much about what we do is build relationships with clients. Yeah. We have got to be able to do that. And that's in our space, in our industry, that can be hard to do with the content matter that we go over. So like we are really looking for people that can do that. And so the rule I've always had that's like in the back of my head when I go into interviews with people and this is what I learned from like one of my first managers, he called it and this by no means, I don't think in any recruiting book, <laughs> but he called it the airport test. And so we did a lot of consulting. I was a consultant before and travel kind of all over the place. And so we would literally be in airports a lot, right? So he would call his interview style, like the airport test. He goes, man, if I'm going to be stuck in an airport with this guy for like six hours, our flight gets delayed. Am I going to like this guy? <laughs> right. If we get stuck together, am I going to be able to actually shoot the shit, have a good time with this person, which says a lot about just them as well as probably will they be able to get along and be able to like have good conversation with our clients yeah. as well? Like outside of the meeting, right? Of delivering what we're doing. Do you want to chat with this person? I think that's awesome. And you're going to be stuck in the airport and they're going to have to. Do I want to go have a beer with them or do right. I just want them to exactly. leave me alone and put my headphones right. on? And you do yeah. your thing. I do my, I'll hang out with David. Okay. Me and David have beer. Micah, you go on. Okay. Yeah, just go work on that PowerPoint. Yeah. <laughs> no, Hey, I do want to say this. This is kind of crazy though. A saying that I've adopted, which is kind of what you're saying is environment dictates performance. Like I am such a believer in that. Like it's kind of become such a, a thing that I say all the time. In fact, I would put it on one of my, pitch decks, because I think it's just so critical. So I heard this story and hang with me because this may get a little wonky at first. Okay. And I may not repeat this story exactly right, but I think people will get the general idea. So apparently in the Vietnam War, well, let me back up. All right. We're going apparently, way back. Like, way back. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so again, please don't nobody write me in and say like, you didn't get that story right. It's like, 
look, I'm trying to get directionally correct here. Okay. So heroin is the most addictive drug there is. Okay. What a way to start. Okay. But just hang with me. So, and it's the hardest to get off. Well, apparently in Vietnam War, the number of like the percentage of soldiers that tried heroin while over there is astronomical. I don't know what the percentage was, but I think it was like 40% or something, like a lot. All right. Coming back, 90% of them got off of it. 90% stopped. Yet it's the most addictive drug possible. Conversely, the success rate, or I guess lack thereof, of apparently drug rehab facilities, if somebody is on heroin, is 90% relapse when they leave that facility. Okay. Again, those are not stats. That's directionally correct. Okay. And you have to ask why the drug itself is still addictive. And the summary that people said, well, environment. Now they don't say environment dictates performance, but the idea was that the environment that they were in over there was more conducive for them to try it, experiment it with it. But when they came back to the United States, they didn't. Does that make sense? And so, and I'm not trying to take something that is serious as that, but I think that there's this idea that they were not going to do that whenever they got back to the United States. 90% of them stopped whenever so many of them tried it, yet it's one of the most addictive drugs. To me, that was fascinating representation of how important the environment, who we surround ourselves with, who we are around, et cetera, is in life, but also in business too. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like they're, uh, we kind of generate our self-image based on the people that are around us a little bit, right? So mm-hmm. I don't know if you get this, but you you start hanging around your family a little bit more. You start like going back almost to childhood, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like you kind of jump into that role, right? So in, in this case, it seems like obviously they were probably off by themselves in a different country, right? You know, when they came back, they were in a different scenario, right? Where they were surrounding themselves with different people. So it's a different, different scenario. That's the yeah. way. I, I, oh, I mean, exactly. I mean, probably, I don't know, maybe a little peer pressure. One of them tries it. Of course, at the time, they probably didn't realize how dangerous it was. And so like they were basically like they're by themselves out in the jungles, apparently. And somebody gets their hands on it. And they're like, I'm going to try it. You want to try it? And the person is like, well, sure. And then you see what I'm saying, like, you can see how that goes versus if they're back home with their family, they're not going to be like, hey, let's just, you know, want to want to try this heroin thing. Like, it doesn't doesn't make sense. And so the context matters. So, again, I think people can kind of get the idea that to me, it's a different way of kind of looking at culture. But when we put them in that environment, the environment of the club capital culture, the Munson culture, like, what is that going to be like? And how does that actually shape their performance? To me, I think it's fascinating. So, I think Bradley, I, was, I think I was talking to Mike about this earlier. And it's, I always forget this too, but it's, I think it's really hard to make that call. But whenever you have a low performer, or now when you say a low performer, a bad cultural fit, yeah, right, team, right? They do. Yeah. It's always better to like remove them from the culture and everybody else steps up their level immediately. And I think that's sometimes hard as a small business owner, right? You always feel like you need more people or you need more people to get the job done, right? You know, sometimes when you remove that bad apple, everybody else's performance steps up. They thank you for making that decision and the whole yes. performance yeah, improves. So, right? I mean, let's not, you know, I mean, some people are better at it than others, but I think it's one of those things in business that I know is kind of a, I guess I'd call it a weak area for me is making that call to dismiss somebody right from the team and, and, you know, have to do that. I mean, it's definitely not, I mean, it's not, I don't think what anyone likes, right. I mean, not to say anyone like likes doing that. I think there are some that are better at it than others. 
I'm one that I can be as much as I am, you know, business related and love pushing forward all the time. You know, I can be soft a little bit on the personal side and just try and like give second, third chances type of thing, right? And try and see, try and meet them where they want to be. Because it's hard. I think it's harder than people kind of make it out to be. And even the people, you know, I feel like so many people are like, oh, no, you just, you know, you hear it all the time. They're not doing good. You cut them. Right. And like, yeah, of course, we all say yes to that and agree to that. But it's harder to do the airport for six hours. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, if you were trapping them in the airport, it's easier. But (laughs) (laughs) so I have to. Okay. Next slide. (laughs) <laughs> well, speaking of, this is actually good. Have you guys seen the movie Up in the Air with George Clooney? I don't think he's a consultant, but it, is he just is he, he shopping? fires people? Pretty much, what yeah. he fires people. That's what he does. That's what he does. So, come on, Micah, you're that guy. You're that guy. We we'll just bring Micah in. Hey, Micah, we got some layoffs we have to make. No, I'm just kidding. You're a softie at heart for sure. In our no. consulting, when we did consulting, that's like why people hire consulting firms, you know, because they're like, well, the consulting firm came in and said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. said, you know because we would assess like departments and be like you're way inefficient and then they'd be like well you see it's not our decision it's theirs and so his character in that movie is i think ryan bingham and he is the traveling corporate downsizer that's what he is <laughs> he's a corporate downsizer so they bring him in and he's just so stoic have you seen that movie micah i think david looks like you have Oh, you got to watch it. Just watch it. It's actually a really good movie. And, you know, he he's like in hotels and airlines and he's got platinum American Airlines flights and every pilot knows him and just all of these kind of things. You know, and they, he just comes in. And he's just like, let's them go. Let's them go. Let's them go. Let's them go. And so there's all these stories. But anyway, and then there's like a romantic love relationship that happens in it. Anyway, it really is a good movie. So it's worth watching. But every time I think about somebody who's like so stoic, just let them go. I think back to that movie. But no, I mean. I think that actually, if we didn't have a heart and you were that way to where it was like, oh, it's no big deal. I think that that would come across in the way that you treat the rest of your team along the way, too. I think people would pick up on that. And I hope that I never, ever get to a point to where I'm so hardened to not realizing there's people's lives at stake. They have a family. They have a mortgage. They have rent. They have food that they've got to put on the table. I hope we never get to that point to where... It's easy for me to let somebody go, even if they're not the right performer, even if they're toxic, even if it's not the right culture fit. At the end of the day, that's still a person and they may not be the right fit for your office or for your business, but they may be an A player in somebody else's business. And that's one thing I try to think about. I think about a lot, Bradley, maybe you, know, maybe you have as well reading business books, et cetera. But uh, and Mike and I talk about it, too. You know, I'm a big sports guy. So just uh, thinking about soccer and these professional soccer teams that have to run at a high level, especially the top clubs, they run at a high level. The standard needs to be high. Right now, I think the average tenure for a a head soccer coach in the European leagues is like under a year and a half. Wow. Um, You know, you got these like clubs that are super high performance, have to have a high culture. Turnover is part of it, right? So, you know, how do you think about this in terms of like establishing a culture and, you know, and and managing to that? Just it makes you think the similarities between business and sport and kind of how that. Oh, yeah. So I feel like Bradley could go off for like an hour. On I could. I'm just trying to see him. You'd be going to football. 
Yeah. <laughs> I didn't talk specifically about soccer, although I was really into the World Cup. The World Cup was amazing. Like that final was incredible. It made me want to get into soccer, but that lasted about a week. And then I was like, nah, never mind. My kids just don't do it. I know you guys are amazing. I'm a basketball guy. I'm basketball and golf. That's my two. And I guess college football too, but college football. So trying to get more into golf. I've been, I've been practicing, trying to get better and better. I was at the world cup. So that was awesome. So I, I, wait, you went to the world cup. Yeah. Uh What in the world? (laughs) How did I not know this? This is unbelievable. Well, what was that like? Okay. We were about to end the podcast. We have to, you can't leave us on the, you can't leave us on a cliffhanger. What was that like? That was incredible for a couple of reasons. Mike and I have a good friend that we went to college with that was part of the coaching staff of the U.S. men's national team. I was able to to go over there with my father as a friends and family. Um, so not only was it cool to to see the games, we saw three games, two U.S. games, but we were also staying with the friends and family of the players. So it's like you know we're we're sitting in the stands with the mom and dad of the you know center center midfielder, right? So it was just a unique- well, man royalty. Holy smokes. Goodness gracious. If you're going to go to the World Cup, anybody wants to go to the World Cup, email David Munson. David. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. You didn't drink a beer, so you didn't go to jail. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. You got to find the right spots for that over there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was was unique because obviously the World Cup, but also unique to see that environment and see kind of behind the scenes of kind of some of the family, you know, family life, et cetera, that that happens there too. It's different if your kid's playing the World Cup, right? You know, most of the players are, you know, the oldest player in the team, I think it was 35, but, you know, most of the rest of them are 20, 21, 22, right? So, yeah, really pretty young out there. They're just kids, yeah. (laughs) Man. I mean, I watch the NBA regular season. I keep up with it. My son's a Coop's a big uh, a big Bucks fan. I'm a Lakers guy, and so you watch those guys, and they're so good during the regular season. But it's 82 games. But man, it they step up multiple levels of competitiveness in the playoffs. I mean, the last night's two games. It is high level sports. It is Jimmy Butler goes for 56 last night. I mean, just pretty incredible stuff. Anyway. It's cool to see people who truly are at the top of their game at that level. So in the kind of the parallel to business, Micah, you saw the asset. I showed you the asset yesterday that we had created the little offer stat PDF, you know. Well, there's skills to, to, to design. And so there's people that can just take certain things and just go to a different level. And it's just cool to see people in business and in sports who can I don't know. To me, it's inspiring whenever people can perform at that type of level, whenever it matters the most. Anyway, that's cool. So, yeah. All right, guys. Well, we didn't get to anything I was going to talk about today, but that's good. <laughs> we'll use them for future fireside chats. Micah, you good? Yeah, sounds good to me. All right. Till next time, guys. All right. Later, Brad.